Hello and welcome to a special edition of The Spectator's Podcast. I'm Kate Andrews, The Spectator's Economics Editor, and your host for the next half hour as we discuss the difficulties that still lie at the heart of the Brexit process. Had COVID-19 not continued to dominate the headlines this year, there's little doubt that the outcomes of the Brexit deal would have been at the forefront of our policy discussions. Britain has left the EU with a bespoke trade agreement, but it's far from perfect, as the Northern Ireland Protocol continues to cause problems, especially for trade flow between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. What have digital solutions done so far to get closer to our goal of seamless trade? Has it been enough? What problems are still left to solve, and do the realities of Brexit simply mean that we can now never fully escape new regulatory burdens? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by Frank Dunsmuir, Head of Customs and International Trade Practice at Fujitsu, Stephen Kelly, Chief Executive of Manufacturing NI, and Shankar Singham, Chief Executive of Comptaire and an advisor to Fujitsu. And this podcast is kindly sponsored by Fujitsu. So Frank, Stephen, and Shankar, thanks so much for joining me. Shankar, to start with, perhaps you can update listeners on what's going on at the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic at the moment. What's happening is the UK government and the European Commission are discussing the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol and making and, and negotiating some potential changes to the way the protocol is implemented. Those negotiations have been going on for, for some time and are probably not expected to conclude this side of Christmas and will probably run into into the new year. Now, in terms of where they are, I think, you know, you've got a number of different issues. One is customs, the customs processes between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which have proved to be, you know, somewhat burdensome for traders and particularly for Northern Ireland importers. But I think that there is a, a landing zone, I think, that's pretty clear for a resolution of the customs issues. So I think you probably will get a negotiated solution there. With regard to movement of food and agriculture, the sort of so-called SBS issues, there I think it's more difficult because it's quite hard to to say to a sort of Northern Ireland farmer or, uh, you know, the benefits of regulatory divergence in GB, you're not going to benefit from in Northern Ireland because European rules, you know, apply to you. And also Northern Ireland consumers, you know, you can't have the loaf of bread that you particularly like because it's now been gene edited in GB, for example. So that's more tricky. And I think there may be a need for some sort of unilateral action there. I think the other issues, medicines and and governance are solvable as well and may in fact be moving quite quickly towards a solution. And I think with regard to governance, which gets a lot of the, the headlines, I think it's fairly clear that matters of European law will have to be adjudicated by the European Court of Justice. And uh, to the extent there are matters of UK law, they would be adjudicated by UK courts and there would be a sort of dispute settlement over the top. So, so I think, again, that there's no real reason for governance to hold up a solution. So my bet is that there will be a negotiated solution at some point after the new year. There may be a unilateral element to that from a UK standpoint, but it will be quite forensic and quite limited. And the whole goal here, of course, is to lower the noise level in Northern Ireland so that the three communities, broadly speaking, on the island of Ireland, the nationalists in in the Republic of Ireland, the nationalists in the north and the unionists in the north, all feel that this is working somehow, you know, for them. And that's the challenge of making the protocol implementable. Stephen Shanker just spoke us through the technicalities of renegotiating the Northern Ireland Protocol. How are the traders that you're speaking to finding the situation day to day? 
The year has been probably a game of two halves. The first half of the year was incredibly difficult, where traders who were moving goods specifically from GB into Northern Ireland were coming up against a whole series of new formalities that they'd never encountered before. With the support of TSS, Fujitsu and others, the priority was on moving those goods. And the the first half of the first half was largely just trying to get your head around the new systems and processes and controls. Who was out there to support you? Working with your supplier in GB to try to get them educated and up to speed with, with the new formalities. And then just simply moving the goods across the Irish Sea. That was then followed by the second half of the uh, the formal border movement, which is called supplementary declarations. And that piece has been incredibly difficult for, for all traders, regardless of their ability and their experience of, of moving stuff internationally prior to uh, 2021. But as the year has gone on, most traders have got to grips with the processes. doesn't mean that they're accepting of them. It doesn't mean that they feel that these are neither appropriate nor manageable for them. Uh, it's an incredibly difficult additional burden, which obviously adds additional cost. But in general terms, they've got over the main problems and they're looking at their supply chain, whether that's in GB, whether that's in Europe or the rest of the world, and working with them to ensure that continuity of supply. Where we've ended up is largely two distinct business communities. One is that business community who continues to have the right for their goods to circulate in the EU's market. To be frank, they're having the time of their lives. As we've seen UK trade with the EU significantly decline, trade between Northern Ireland and Ireland, for instance, is up 63%. It's a quite a remarkable boost to that export community. And because they're able to, to benefit from that, they're willing to accept the additional burdens on the Irish Sea and the disruption that is there now in terms of their supply chain. The other half of the audience really is those people who wholly or largely just bring goods to Northern Ireland for consumption in Northern Ireland or as part of a process where they go back to the rest of the United Kingdom. Those people have all the burden and not necessarily much of the benefit. And it's that group of people who are continuing to struggle, continuing to find the burdens as a draw or drag on their competitiveness. But at this point in time, the promise of goods freely circulating on the island of Ireland and into the EU and unfettered access into the rest of the UK marketplace has been hugely beneficial to our manufacturing community. For the first time in the 100 years that Northern Ireland has existed, we have a competitive advantage that we can take to the world and we're seeing that increasingly, not just from our individual businesses themselves, but the agencies of the Northern Ireland Executive, including our investment agency. And we've seen some extraordinary announcements despite the political uncertainty and despite the conflict that exists there around acceptance or not of the protocol. And if I give two examples, one is our largest private sector employer announced 1,000 new jobs in Northern Ireland as part of it, almost 2,000 jobs announcements. That's the single biggest investment in jobs in memory, actually, in Northern Ireland. And then just a couple of weeks after that, a packaging firm announced a $200 million investment in a new canning facility in Northern Ireland to service their customers in Northern Ireland, in the UK and the EU. And your listeners will recall 
the big investment by John DeLorean back in the 1980s. And this £200 million investment from a cash point of view is equivalent to that investment. We hope we don't go back to the future. Uh, we hope that this is something that we can benefit from and, and see Northern Ireland prosper. But that shows you that the market is looking in. The market spots the opportunity that's there. And Northern Ireland is poised to, to grasp that economic opportunity that's been presented to it. Frank, we hear a lot about technical solutions that are going to improve the protocol. What kind of things are we talking about? There's mention of QR codes and blockchain, but perhaps you can explain to the layman listener what these things are and how they might improve the situation. I'll do my best. Great. <laughs> First of all, let's look at what the problem is. So prior to the Northern Ireland Protocol coming in, you could load a vehicle and drive it between Great Britain and the island of Ireland because we're all in the EU without any additional checks. So it was, it was pretty much the same as if you drove from Manchester to Birmingham, etc. There's similar, very similar processes. The introduction of the Northern Ireland Protocol because of leaving the EU means we, we now have to have a customs procedure in order to move goods from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. So a customs import declaration has to be done. And that whole process is as light as possible. There isn't an export declaration, etc., but you still need to do that. And at some point, that check needs to happen that that vehicle that's arriving into Belfast Port or Larn Port, etc., has a declaration and the goods are in the vehicle are correctly declared and they may need to be checked if they're food substances, etc. Now, those ports and that infrastructure were never really set up to have checks in the port. So if you visit the ports, they don't have the necessarily the footprint and the structure to be able to queue vehicles up and perform checks and the manpower that's required to stop vehicles, the veterinary inspectors, etc., and official inspectors that are needed would be significant. So, so that process will introduce glue and stickiness into the whole movement of goods. So the concept being, can you get to a point where the truck is able to somehow drive across, enter the port and announce itself? Can you make a smart truck? Can you connect it to systems and, and authorities so that the truck says, here I am, this is what I've got, this is what I'm carrying, etc. You don't need to check me because I'm I've been checked before and I haven't been tampered with during my journey. And pretty much that's where the, the technology is headed towards that we've been introducing and we're currently trialling actually with live trials. So the principle being you move the check away from the port to the point of dispatch or the point of arrival or both. The goods are loaded in a depot in Manchester, for example. They're checked by an authorised person. They're put into the vehicle and the vehicle is sealed with a, a smart lock or a smart device of some sort. And from that moment on, the vehicle and its contents are broadcast to a dashboard and at any one point, the port authorities will know where that vehicle is. And if the goods have been tampered with during the journey, it will be notified to the, to the authorities. Otherwise, the vehicle arrives, they can see when it arrives, they can confirm on the system that the check was already done at the point of dispatch, so don't need to see it again. And then they can follow it all the way to its point of arrival confirming that it's actually going to arrive in a depot in Northern Ireland. And under that process, it's an intra-UK movement. We can reduce the level of checks and interventions required at the port by putting trust into the entire supply chain and making that data visible. So that's broadly speaking the tech behind it. Frank, Stephen mentions TSS there, which stands for the Trader Support Service. Can you talk us through what that is and what Fujitsu's stake is in all of this? Listeners are probably more familiar with your provision of laptops than they are when it comes to your provision of nitty-gritty trade structures. Certainly, Kate. And it's really interesting updates from Stephen there on how 
it's affected the community in terms of, you know, there are advantages being offered to trade. Hopefully that will continue. The Trader Support Service was set up at the beginning of the year. It was a tender from the government, a public tender, which asked for bids to set up a customs intermediary service that will provide a free-to-use customs intermediary service for the movement of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And you're right, Kate, Fujitsu is a technology company. So, so why did we engage in that and why did we take part in the bid for the trade support service and, and go on to win that? And the reason for that is over the last three years prior to that coming to market, Fujitsu had set up a Future Borders programme and we were looking at ways of how technology could be used to address some of the challenges that were, were likely to occur and face us as we exit from the EU. And how can we turn that exit into an advantage? How can we exploit uh, latest technologies and advancements to create a world-class border capability? And as part of that programme, we've been steadily building a collection of partners and associate organisations that we could collaborate with. So we filled the gaps where you wouldn't expect to see Fujitsu, for example, on the legal side, on the policy side, on the customs intermediary, the details of customs policy, etc. And together with that small consortium, we ended up bidding for the Trader Support Service. And we'd already thought much of this through before the proposal came out. And we were successful in that bid. And what it does is we set up a brand new service. So for those of you who remember, it was the beginning of the year, just just as COVID was was emerging, during lockdown, we managed to set up that service. So something like 700 contact centre agents to support people. We set up a huge education facility because traders have never been used to creating declarations for moving goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So all of this was new process, new procedure. So there's an enormous education process required on this. And we partnered with the Institute of Exports to design and launch that, that service. It's been overwhelmingly successful in how it's been used. And well, can I ask on those success metrics how, how it's going? MPs were told in January this year that it simply wasn't good enough, that there were complaints about poor response times, declarations of not being processed fast enough. One DUP MP cited a, a car trader who had to go through nearly a thousand steps to make a customs declaration. Have these situations been remedied now? There are always going to be challenges. If, if we pretend that moving goods under customs procedures and processes is straightforward, and I think we're kidding ourselves a bit, but I would say, echo what Stevens mentioned there, this is a, it's a year of two halves. It was a bumpy landing. It was challenging times. People, the very identity of some organisations and people are being challenged here. So in terms of wanting to raise a declaration, let alone how to raise a declaration, was all under question and challenge at the beginning of the year and this was a brand new service brand new technology and brand new platform going in to be used for the first time day one January the 1st and it was successful it worked day one and goods moved day one and we've been working very closely with industry throughout the year gradually and steadily improving the process and the usability of the system so heading towards release 10 so we've ironed out all of these wrinkles, not all of them, but majority of them. Customer satisfaction is rising at a very steady rate and it's been very well received. And we're sitting in a position where we have about 40,000 users of the system, as in companies, which is huge. We've achieved over 3 million declarations to date. And I think the biggest recognition of that is the, is the customer feedback, which has been very positive. Shankar, let me bring you in. Now, for transparency, you have a formal advisory role with Fujitsu, yes? Yeah, my company is an advisor to Fujitsu, yeah. So with that hat on, what areas do you think are working and what needs to be improved? 
Yeah, so broadly speaking, yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. I mean, if you, I think it's important to understand the, the scale of the TSS. When we started developing it, and Frank and I worked together on, on the Alternative Arrangements Commission beforehand, so we had, we've been trying to understand, trying to solve this, this issue for several years now, so we sort of hit the ground a little bit running on this. But in the course of the year, we must have done you know, well over 130, 140 seminars. We've communicated with literally thousands of traders. We have 40 5,000, you know, who, who we are acting for. So the scale of this is completely unprecedented. And the pace of it is also unprecedented. So we've had to, customs controls have been imposed on the GBNI boundary. And TSS has had to literally build that and, and manage the EU's external border on the island of Ireland, or at least between the NIGB boundary, immediately without any implementation period or anything. So it has been a 24-7 job task that is, as I say, without precedent anywhere really in the world. And I think, you know, people do confuse sometimes what the TSS is able to do and what the customs rules actually are. So, so for example, we've had a lot of people say, well, Stephen mentioned supplementary declarations earlier on, say, well, why did TSS introduce this? Well, actually, it's part of the law. It has to be introduced. Our job is to make it as easy as possible for people. And I think what TSS has to do is deliver as free flow as possible of trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And what we have to do is ensure that by doing that, you also have, as per the protocol, unfettered access from Northern Ireland to GB and an invisible border, no processes, no tariffs between Northern Ireland and Ireland. And to Stephen's point earlier on, if we can do those things, if we can deliver those things, then the EU and the UK have, you know, perhaps unwittingly through the negotiations and through the protocol, created a special economic zone in Northern Ireland, which has complete access to the EU, unfettered access to GB, and free flow as possible GB to Northern Ireland. And there is nowhere like that on earth. There's nowhere that has that kind of access to its major markets, really anywhere. The big special economic zones everyone knows about are open to other countries trading into them, but they don't have any special access with with other people. So it is a huge opportunity, I think, for Northern Ireland if we can make it work. And that's the big if, and that's the the challenge that we face. I'd just add to that, Shankar, as well. TSS, you know, firsthand has acted as a conduit, a positive conduit between traders and policymakers and government bodies. There's some great examples where Shankar has been working, I think it was New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, working with an organisation in, in Scotland to organise the movement of prawn tails, which was one of those consignments that had a huge number of administrative requirements because of the, the nature of the goods that were on that vehicle, the complexity of which would have just prohibited them moving those goods, certainly for the foreseeable future. But it was it was working in real time with the traders, with the policy Port Health and with some ministers to say, here's a more practical approach to this that is just as secure, just as health and safety conscious, etc., that would work on this occasion. And that was an example of how the TSS in its broader remit was able to help and influence more facilitations, lighter admin than would otherwise have been needed. Stephen, let me ask you, do these improvements ring true and are you quite hopeful for 2022? They do. I think the first thing to say is that I mean, in many ways, Fujitsu were handed a bit of a hospital pass here. I mean, I know they bid for it and there's money involved, but I mean, to, to get off from a zero start, to get off the ground and, and actually create a platform 
and an education process to deal with thousands of traders in Northern Ireland and in GB to ensure the goods continue to move on the 1st of January onwards. Whenever the deal between the UK and the EU on the operational plan for the protocol was only secured on the, I think it was the 8th of December, Christmas obviously got in the way of all of that. And then the UK's deal with the UK and the EU deal on the trading cooperation agreement was only agreed at what, about four o'clock on Christmas Eve. In many respects, to get from that standing start to actually a system that was operational and, and goods continued to move was, as an outsider, quite extraordinary. And what I would say is that as the year has gone on, yes, there were issues, yes, there were concerns, yes, there were was a lot of confusion. But Frank and his team and everyone involved with TSS have been incredibly patient with people who just either never experienced anything like this before, firstly, and on many occasions may have been completely objecting to the fact that these checks and controls were in place at all. So to navigate their way through that period, build the boat as the boat has already sailed, was quite an effort. I think, Kate, one of the one of the kind of critical things about all of this is that this protocol is there in many ways as a replacement for potentially a border on the island of Ireland. And actually having predictability about what's moving where it's moving from and to, what time it's moving to those places, probably helps actually the system work at all because to, to actually apply this on a on a very porous border with 300 perhaps more informal crossings would have been next on impossible. And actually the deal in the end with the economic benefit potentially on the other side for us, with those points of control that are predictable, actually makes this work for us. Schenker. A lot of this sounds like bureaucracy, but is that just inevitable now that we're out of the European Union? In April, you said the only way to remove all these processes would be for the UK to stay in the single market. I feel like we didn't hear much about this bureaucracy during the referendum campaign, albeit we did hear about technical solutions. So maybe there's a bit of a balance here. I mean, that's the critical question, isn't it? So I think in order to have a successful result, if we can take this back to a high level, from the process of the UK leaving the EU, there's only one way of doing this. You've got to minimise the disruptions that inevitably come from leaving the EU, and you've got to maximise the opportunities. And sometimes, in order to maximise the opportunities, that does constrain what you can do in in terms of minimising the disruptions. That's the reason why the UK is not in the customs union and the single market, because if we were, we would not be able to have the opportunities of an external trade policy and domestic regulatory reform. So in order to do this, you've got to push out all of these different things at the same time. And that's the challenge of this process. So you've got to, as much as you can on your external trade policy, that's why the UK is negotiating, you know, we should have deals fairly soon with Australia and New Zealand, uh, you know, CPTPP, the accession to the Trans-Pacific Partnership should happen within a year. And of course, you know, we're, we're trying to do what we can with the US, bearing in mind the change in administration and the change of focus in the US. That's the external trade policy agenda. The domestic regulatory agenda is really important as well. Some would argue more important, actually, to improve your domestic regulatory environment. So you've got to do that. You've got to be tasking the departments like DEFRA and like Bayes, who have control of most of the regulation in the UK, to see whether you can actually improve the regulation, improve the business environment for for people to grow the economy and to create wealth. Now, that's the sort of opportunity side of the ledger. Now, what you also have to do at the same time 
is take the controls and the processes and the bureaucracy, as you, as you mentioned, that comes from leaving the customs union and minimize it as much as you can. And in some ways, what's happening on the GBNI boundary is very much an example of what all borders aspire to be. I mean, all borders aspire to be invisible in terms of facilitation of trade. So the UK has a very laudable ambition to have the best border in the world by 2025. There is a bit of an unfrozen moment here where there are certain things that the UK can do in a limited window. There's a sort of limited window of opportunity where you can act and you can act quickly. The reason the UK will need to have the best border in the world by 2025, or at least a substantially improved border from what we have now, is because we have to have that. We have to have that in order to minimise those disruptions. And so technology, yeah, technology plays an important role, but it's important to understand that it fits into a context which has a legal aspect to it, which has a policy aspect to it. All of those things need to be figured out so that goods can flow as quickly and seamlessly as possible. And all of these things are being done actually all over the world. So for example, trusted trader schemes around the world. Brazil has just implemented one that saves the country $3 billion a year. So there are significant savings that can come from these kinds of these kinds of systems. But at the end of the day, what you have to do with the border is you have to move from a transaction-based system where I move a good you know, across the border and there are checks and controls as that good crosses the border to a trusted systems-based mechanism where I know the trader. It's a bit like your, you know, trusted traveler programs. You know, I know the person, they're on global entry or whatever the program is, and therefore they are subject to far fewer controls and checks because I know them. And we need to do that effectively with traders as well. And part of this is how do I know them? And a lot of the technology that Frank was referring to is the mechanism for how you know them. So if you can know those traders and you can take, you know, the bulk of trade off the table in terms of difficulty and burden and and process and so forth, so that you're focused only on the truly risky aspects of trade and you spend your resources on those aspects of trade that actually carry significant risk, then you're going to be able to make your border work much, much more effectively. And I think that's what the UK government has got to do in order to minimise these disruptions. Frank, Shanker speaks there about how this doesn't just have to apply to the EU, but you can look around the world and and see how these improvements could help global trade. So could the experience of the Northern Ireland Protocol actually help when it comes to digitising the UK's other borders? It really can. So the focus that uh, the government has at the moment is on launching its 2025 future border strategy. And the intention there is to make it make our border the most effective border in the world by 2025. So it's quite an ambition. And if you look at that, it has a number of underlying strategies within that. So first of all, there are six main programs, but I would sum them into three main strategies, which is making it easy for businesses to navigate through the trade processes because it's complex. (laughs) It is very complex business. The second one is to make sure we've got world-class facilitations. This is about making sure that we are offering to the rest of the world the easiest administration process and, and services that they can use to trade with us. So if you're, as Shankar was mentioning, if you're a trusted trader, if you're established and we know you in some sort of way, you have a much lower administrative burden. And things like the introduction of free ports would sit into that area, that category. So 
government has announced 10 freeport sites. And that will stimulate international trade just by the fact that it makes it a lot easier for them to bring product here, to manufacture and, and manipulate that product, and then to re-export them as finished goods in some sort of fashion with far easier and lighter customs processes and, and taxes. And then the third one is, of course, the government needs to promote international trade. So they've launched the Export Support Service, which is in its first phase at the moment. But again, looking at best practice around the world, this is actively promoting United Kingdom trade and innovation and helping those traders, those UK traders, to understand where their markets are and how they should approach those markets. So it's an ambitious strategy, but it's one that I think has been very, very well received. And finally, underpinning that, the technology strands. But as Shankar was referring to, technology is an enabler. Without those policy and legislation and operational aspects, the technology just won't deliver. So it relies on those, which is why we use our, our consortium to, to approach these, these challenges. Stephen, last question to you. The government likes to pride itself on being a leader when it comes to digital. In G7, for example, it led an agreement on digital trade. But from your vantage point, liaising with manufacturers in Northern Ireland, does it feel like it's kicking in yet? No, I suppose is the the short answer. I mean, the the UK government's doing lots of things really well and it's doing lots of things not so well. I think there's there's a great journey still to be travelled in many of these areas. What I would say is that the challenge that Brexit has brought, and the UK government has taken a, an instruction from the UK population to fundamentally alter its economic model. And one of the elements of that is that Northern Ireland's economic model is fundamentally adjusted alongside that. And we need to try to capture the best of opportunity that, that flows from that. The second thing I would say is that, as with any dance, it takes two to tango. And it's all well and good, the UK government trying to lead the way in terms of its own external borders, trying to be the best in class, etc., etc. But a border is a two-way door. It goes in both directions. And you need, you need the rest of the world to come alongside you. And this year has proven probably a bit difficult diplomatically for the UK government, I would suggest, particularly with the Americans, because of some of the approaches and some of the language used around the Northern Ireland Protocol. So... I think there's a journey that has begun. I really like Frank's description there that technology is an enabler. It helps grease the wheel. It helps us make things quicker, faster, more secure and simpler. And I think that there are lessons from the Northern Ireland Protocol that can be played out by the UK government to the rest of the world. I mean, try, try moving alcohol between provinces in Canada and you see an internal border and how difficult that is. Or try to move food products into California from elsewhere in the United States. There are real problems just moving stuff even within a country. What is really clear about this year is business is enormously resilient, incredibly creative, definitely problem solvers, and will not allow anything to stand in its way in order to be successful and grasp those opportunities. Stephen, Shanker and Frank, thanks for joining me. 